Thank you for listening, but please be advised that I hold no degrees in the topics I discuss. While I try to view all sides, I miss things like anyone else, so please feel free to inform me at livingthroughextinction at gmail.com if I get something wrong. Please also be advised that I swear, and I do not take the time to bleep stuff out, so listener discretion is advised. Hello, I'm Ruby, and this is episode 51 of Living Through Extinction, a short to the point podcast with science, skepticism, environment, wildlife, and ways we as humans can be better overall. My break time is coming up. I take January 1st and July 1st off, so episode 52 will actually be out in four weeks rather than two. That will be on January 13th, 2022. If you've joined me before, then thank you so much for returning. If this is your first time listening to Living Through Extinction, welcome. I hope you find it both fun and informative. I saw a cup recently, which I did not buy, but wish I had, that said, Merry Winter Solstice, you thieving Christian bastards. And I thought, what better topic for December than to take a look at our traditional celebrations and figure out where they came from and why we use them the way we do today. Let's give the fundamentalists who may have accidentally stumbled in a chance to turn me off before I go on. They don't like to hear this stuff. Okay? Okay. They've been warned. One of the wildest things I hear from hardcore Christians in certain sects today is that Halloween should not be celebrated, and when asked why... The answer tends to be something about it being unholy or rooted in witchcraft. The traditions are pagan in origins. The thing is, according to Christians, everything not Christian was pagan. Initially, practices of all belief systems that were not Christian were referred to by Christians as pagans. These pagans were made up of different groups of people with different beliefs and traditions. So please be advised going forward, Christians prevailed and so were able to write a great deal of history. If you hear Germanic pagan tribes, for example, that basically means German tribes with non-Christian beliefs. All right, so why are some, not all, but some of these Christians totally fine with Christmas and those traditions? At least those who ban both Halloween and Christmas are being consistent. But many of those who reject Halloween have no problems with Christmas. Go and ask an American how long Christmas Day has been a national holiday. Most assume it always has been. December 25th didn't actually become a national holiday in the U.S. until 1870. You see, the U.S. had a lot of Puritans in its early years, and they were consistent with their beliefs. The pagan traditions people like to enjoy in some places were not acceptable by these folks. Christmas was thought to be for derelicts and sinners. The beginning of the days getting longer, or the winter solstice, has been celebrated around the world since long before any of the Messiah-claiming men who call themselves Jesus walked the earth. It's natural for humans to feel better as the physical darkness of winter gets shorter and shorter, and throughout our history, we have had the urge to celebrate it. In Scandinavia, the Norse celebrated Yule from the winter solstice, December 21st, right through until the 1st of January. They were recognizing the return of the sun, the sun in the sky, not the son of God. But you can see how that became the return of the son of God in some religious sects, right? For Yule, fathers and sons would bring home very large logs, which would then be set on fire. 
Once burning, the family would feast until the log burned out. Apparently this could take up to 12 days, to which I say that was a smolder, not a fire. Unless they were burning fucking redwood trees, right? Anyway, each spark from the log during this time was supposed to represent a new pig or calf that would be born during the coming year. To which I say again, a smolder or sparks would be flying constantly. I'm not sure, but that was Yule, and the Yule log once used to celebrate the days getting longer by the Norse. In Germany, there was a god named Odin, and residents actually feared him in midwinter. They would stay inside as much as possible, which one would expect they would do anyway because of the cold. Apparently, there was also a bearded man named Odin, spelled differently, who flew through the sky on an eight-legged horse named Slupner. Kids would fill their booties with carrots and straw and leave them by the chimney for Slupner to eat. Odin would reward them by leaving little presents in the booties in exchange. There's a lot in this one that we took from. The old man flying through the sky with an animal that shouldn't be able to fly, food being left for the animal, presents being left for the kids. Rome had a few midwinter celebrations. Juvenalia was a feast honoring the children of Rome. Upper-class folk celebrated the birthday of Mithra, the god of the unconquerable sun. Again, that's S-U-N. And the date of that celebration? Oh, what do you know? December 25th. The main midwinter celebration in Rome, though, which you have probably heard of, was Saturnalia. This honored Saturn, who was known as the god of agriculture. They went hardcore for this one, beginning the week leading up to the winter solstice and continuing for a full month. It was known as a hedonistic time full of food, drink, merriment, joy, and gift giving, and all schools and businesses were closed so that everyone could celebrate. Oh, and social order was turned upside down at this time, with slaves given temporary freedom and all classes being treated as equals. So, what about this mishmash of stuff we see as Christian Christmas traditions today? We can thank the Romans, Celtics, Norse, Druids, and more for most of it. Initially, the Christian Church did not believe in celebrating the birth dates of saints. The day of their martyrdom was considered to be much more important. That's why Easter was the most important Christian celebration for centuries. Because it wasn't considered important, there was never a record of the birth date of Jesus, so it was always just estimated based on the stories in the Bible. When Pope Julius I picked the date to be Christ's birthday, he chose December 25th. This was smart, cunning even. The move of a successful cult leader if I ever heard one. This made it easier to fit in with, celebrate with, absorb a little bit of, and bring in huge swaths of people to the Christian faith. What's that Mark Twain quote about faith I'm always hearing on FFRF? Faith is believing what you know ain't so. Anyway, over centuries, it spread and changed. People in different regions made it their own in different ways. By the end of the 6th century, it was being celebrated in England as the Feast of the Nativity. Celebrations were a bit rowdy at that time. I saw it compared to Mardi Gras partying. Because of the very orthodox Puritan beliefs of many early American pilgrims, Christmas was outright outlawed from 1659 to 1681 in the city of Boston. One could be fined if caught practicing any of it. Apparently, it became even more looked down upon after the American Revolution. It was just too darn paganistic for their Puritan asses. So, another 200 years later, and people have chilled out a little bit, and Christmas Day becomes a holiday in the United States. After this, Americans, even Christians, began to embrace it, and, like other nations before them, reinvented it for themselves. Once it finally became a national holiday, that meant that entire families would be able to be home together, and it became less focused on the traditional rowdiness the Puritans disliked so much and more of an opportunity for family time, which they could approve of. The 1800s is also when North American families began to be less disciplined towards their children and more aware and sensitive of their emotional well-being. 
Christmas quickly became a day that parents could enjoy giving their children all sorts of extra attention and presents and not appear to be spoiling them. It was literally an excuse to be able to spoil your kids once a year. In the next 100 years, Americans built a Christmas all their own, and we celebrate it pretty much the same way here in Canada. Our traditions today are filled with bits and pieces of many other customs, including decorating trees, sending holiday cards, gift giving. One explanation I read said that they found those traditions that fit with their current needs and values and adopted them for American Christmas. Known as a pagan tradition, again that's a non-Christian belief system of some kind, a tradition called waysailing had people roaming through the village in large groups singing as loud as they could in hopes of banishing evil spirits and wishing good health to those around them. St. Francis took this idea in the 13th century and began the Christian tradition of Christmas caroling. During Saturnalia celebrations, Romans hung small metal ornaments on trees outside their homes. The ornaments would represent a god or a patron saint. Early Germanic tribes did similar things but with fruits and candles to honor Odin through the winter solstice. Christians took from all of it, decorating with ornaments, candles, fruit, and that eventually became today's Christmas tree decorating, which I have to admit is a lot of fun when you have small kids. Decking the halls is also connected to the Saturnalia holiday. Romans made holly wreaths in exchange for good luck. At a time when Christianity was new and in the minority, they actually were being persecuted. Not like today's bullshit fake persecution complexes that today's Christians have. I'm talking real persecution. Believe it or not, they actually were the persecuted in the very beginning of Christianity. Now, Christians wanted to celebrate their special day in some way, so they picked up the tradition of decorating wreaths so they could do something nice to celebrate and appear that they were really celebrating Saturnalia, keeping away the haters. I'm just going to do one more, so it's got to be mistletoe. Okay, boring traditions first. To the Druids, it meant peace and joy, and if enemies found themselves under the leaves of mistletoe, they were to lay down their arms and form a truce until the next day. That's not who we copied. We copied another Roman Saturnalia tradition for this one, except we didn't exactly copy it. We toned it down to a G rating. It's my understanding that the Romans honored Saturn by performing rather graphic fertility rituals under mistletoe sprigs. Eventually, most families were buying into the idea that they were celebrating Christmas the way it had always been celebrated. The world felt smaller then, and it was really hard to have any vision past one's own nose. Beyond Europe and North America, however, it never really did take a hard hold. It is not celebrated by the majority population in many places, and most nations do not have it as a cultural holiday of any kind. As non-believers, we celebrate a secular Christmas in our household. I started a tradition when the first kid was born. They pick out an ornament every year. Obviously, I pick the first ones, but as soon as they were old enough to point at what they like, they've been picking their own. At almost 16 and 18 now, they each have a paper box full of ornaments that reflect their different likes through the years. My oldest has expressed how he likes the tradition, and he'd like to do it with his kids one day, so I claim that one is a win. Have you created any of your own traditions, or does your family have something special that they've done for generations that not everyone does? I'd like to hear about it. Email me at livingthroughextinction at gmail.com. Happy holidays, and remember to be skeptical, dammit! Carbon-neutral fuels are a big part of the Fixing the Environment wish list. Lots of groups of scientists in different fields of research are working towards the same thing. Most recently, researchers at Washington University in St. Louis have discovered a way to train microbes to make a readily usable biofuel. Biological scientists and engineering scientists came together to figure this one out. 
They've managed to harness the power of microbes to convert carbon dioxide into value-added multi-carbon compounds in a usable biofuel. The fuel has a high energy content and a low tendency to vaporize or dissolve in water without combustion. These are three of the qualities they were aiming for. The microbe they've had success with is called Brotopseudomonas palustris TIE1. Now, while I did look at the Nature publication on the process that led to this discovery and how it works, what they did was complicated as shit. I wish I had the know-how to explain it in proper detail, but I honestly don't. Go to nature.com for yourself to check it out, or see the publication in Communications Biology from November 3rd, 2021. I've got no wilder plant life stories today, so jumping to today's research topic. Vinyl. Vinyl. Who among us doesn't have vinyl in their lives in one form or another? Fencing, siding, signage, rolls, tiles, baseboards, door trims, blinds, backsplashes, decals, records, gloves, hoses, cabinets, kettlebells, even many collectible figures are made of vinyl. I'm going to stick to talking about a few specific forms we see every day. Floors, siding, and records. The main ingredient in the production of vinyl is petroleum, and we all know that's a non-renewable resource. Plastics are also huge culprits in the use of petroleum. Many different vinyls can also emit VOCs in the air for a period of time after installation. There's those bloody volatile organic compounds again. Is it me or are they appearing in about like every other episode now? In case this is your first episode of Living Through Extinction, volatile organic compounds are the tiny bits in the air that we breathe which harm the air quality and cause health issues in people over time, most often respiratory related health issues. While production has its issues with the toxic wastewater, greenhouse emissions, and creation of dioxins, the main concern of environmentalists is actually its resilience. When a vinyl product is replaced, which happens regularly with flooring and siding, the discarded vinyl will stick around pretty much forever. There's a kind of trade-off. The fact that it's resilient means it can be used without replacing it for 10 to 20 years. This saves on the waste and impacts of removing and disposing of carpets and other things. But vinyl cannot be refinished. Once damaged, it requires replacement. And once that replacement does occur, the old product will take up space in a landfill for ages, and it's not biodegradable. So upon disposal, that durability goes from being a benefit to a problem. Unfortunately, in this day of being able to recycle so many things, vinyl still a problem. Most vinyl materials are not the same enough to be combined in a recycling process. But it's my understanding that the biggest issue is the fact that flooring, backsplashes, and some other things use a strong adhesive for installation. When removed, the adhesive is generally still very stuck to the product, and it cannot go through a recycling process in that condition. Sticking with the glue for just a second, many contain asbestos and chemicals known to leave more VOCs. We are lucky to have more options today. We live in a time when there are some glue options which will not contain these things, but labels must be read. The vinyl material used for flooring is polyvinyl chloride. 14 billion pounds of it are manufactured in the US every year. Think about that huge number for just a second. 14 billion pounds a year, all of which will stick around pretty much forever. There are also potential health problems with the production and use of polyvinyl chloride. In the manufacturing process, ethylene dichloride and vinyl chloride are produced, and they can cause serious harm to the environment and the people living in the area of the plants. Vinyl is normally a hard product, but for flooring, flexibility is required. So phthalates are added to give it this property. 
Phthalates have come up on the show before. They are toxic and have been linked to reproductive and respiratory problems in people with prolonged exposure. In the 70s, when worker protections were somewhat lacking compared to today, doctors noticed unusually high levels of a specific type of cancer in people employed in manufacturing vinyl chloride. And as for local wildlife, the toxins from these plants last long enough to do harm over many miles as they flow away from their origin. This can cause infection of creatures at the lower end of the food chain, and they are consumed by higher level animals, which are often consumed by us. The good news is that in today's production, workers are much more protected than they were in the 70s. The other problems, though, do remain. While not harmful as it sits, vinyl flooring does emit noxious fumes with harmful dioxins when heated. So if a fire breaks out, or even if a hot pan drops on the floor, bioaccumulative toxins are being released into the area. Vinyl siding is apparently even worse in the case of a fire. When burned, it releases chlorine gas and dioxins, and this is the most popular choice for houses existing in both the U.S. and Canada. Again, though, like the flooring, the risk is low unless a fire breaks out. I've heard vinyl siding referred to as green, so looked for the arguments as to why it would be, but most of the arguments I find consist of other things put out emissions too. But then there's still the foreverness of it all. That matters too. It's not just about the emissions. Anyways, when I looked at a comparison of vinyl and fiber cement siding, fiber cement seems to win out. The product's contents were compared, as well as manufacturing processes, emissions, worker health, embodied energy, end of life. Go to greenhouseguide.com to see the comparisons for yourself. If you're building, I'd say it's really worth looking at. Another popular vinyl product, which is making a bit of a comeback, is the vinyl record. Believe it or not, we recently had a year where CD sales dropped and record sales went up. In 2020, record sales surpassed CD sales for the first time in more than a generation. Apparently, this is being driven by millennial collectors. That's you, isn't it, Sam? Sam from Witch Police Radio probably has more records than anyone I've ever known. The problem with records is that the technology is old and not being updated. It hasn't changed for a century. A pressing plant can have dozens of hydraulic machines running 24-7 that are all several decades old. And more than half the polymers used to make records for some reason come from Thai plastic and chemicals in Bangkok. Why can't the polymers come from here? Don't they make their polymers from our waste that we ship overseas? Or am I just remembering that wrong? I kind of want to look that up now, but I'm afraid to exit my garage band to Google because I've never done that before, so oh well. Anyway, that was just three of the many, many vinyl products surrounding us. Now that I have it on my mind, I'm seeing it everywhere. I have a couple Harley Quinn figures I see when I wake up every morning, and they are actually from a series called Vinyl Vixens. So one guess as to what they're made of. If I really took a detailed look around my home, I wonder how many things I would find. I should do that one day, but I'm afraid the number would be super high. Also, it would take more than a day. Everyone in my house is a collector, and there are figures and pops and statues and stuffies, and I can't imagine going through every item. Every day, people pass away waiting for a healthy organ match. And not just people who did something to cause it. There are infants and children who end up with organ diseases through no fault of their own. 1 in 10 infants and 1 in 20 children who end up on a wait list for a liver will die before they can get it. And that's just the liver. There are heart waiting lists, kidney waiting lists, waiting lists for skin and nerve grafts. The reason I bring up these depressing statistics is that there is real hope on the horizon for future patients. You may have heard about 
gal-safe pigs and how they are allowing people with specific allergies to be able to enjoy meat again. But are you aware that the ultimate goal with these genetically engineered animals is to create a readily available, less likely to be rejected organ and tissue supply? In case someone missed it, I'll start with the alpha-gal syndrome. This is a type of food allergy to meat and other mammalian products. People develop this allergy through the introduction of a sugar molecule called alpha-gal into the body. This can happen through the bite of a Lone Star tick. The infected individual will have mild to severe reactions to the alpha-gal sugar found in beef, pork, and lamb. 34,000 people in the U.S. suffer with alpha-gal syndrome. So, via animal biotechnology, pigs have been genetically engineered to eliminate alpha-gal sugar on the surface of the pig's cells. These are being called gal-safe pigs. Aside from meat, did you know that many medications contain a pork-based gelatin? People with alpha-gal syndrome are not able to take these. The gal-safe pigs will also be usable to make pharmaceuticals and medical implants, making them safe for those they may not have been safe for before. That's great news for alpha-gal patients. And then there's the organ supply. Alpha-gal sugar is suspected to be the cause of rejection in patients receiving xenotransplants. And tissues and organs from gal-safe pigs have the potential to address this. The ability to obtain tissue from these special pigs could be used to overcome the current shortages we have for skin and nerve grafts. The number of lives that could be saved and the amount of suffering that could be minimalized is huge. If you have a problem with the genetic modification of these pigs, then I and everyone who has ever lost someone on a donor list tell you to fuck the fuck off. So many children could someday be free from the excruciating weights they endure today. And for some, it will save their lives. The FDA has approved the intentional genomic alteration in domestic pigs for human food and therapeutic uses. The health and safety of the pigs were evaluated and the health and safety of human consumption of said pigs was evaluated. The meats will be the first thing we see, but apparently they will be mail order only in the very beginning. I'm sure that also means it will be rather expensive when it first comes out. The good news is, once they have the gal-safe pigs, two gal-safe pigs having babies make more gal-safe pigs. So it sounds like this is a supply that could be increased to the point of a normal livestock over time. I hope that turns out to be true in this case. Gal-safe pigs are just pigs. They are just missing that one part that causes harm to some people. And that doesn't just allow those pigs to be eaten as meat. It allows them to be able to be used for potential life-saving medications. Next on the list is to figure out exactly which other genes need to be removed or introduced in order to reach the point where there is no such thing as a wait list for skin, hearts, kidneys, and more. This is progress, good progress no matter what some may think about the genetic sciences. And that's it for me for 2021. I hope you all have a most fabulous holiday season, whatever it is you celebrate. Thank you for listening. May your health and sanity be replenished daily. Thank you to Jason Martin for composing the intro and outro for the show, and thank you to Kathy Rayner and Paul Palmer for their musical contributions on the violin and guitar. I hope you will return on January 13th, 2022 for episode 52 of Living Through Extinction. If you enjoyed what you just heard and would like to support the show, the best ways to do so are to subscribe, rate, comment, like, and share on your favorite podcast apps and all the social medias. The show can be found under Living Through Extinction on Facebook, Instagram, Pinterest, and TikTok, and under LTE Pod on Twitter. There is also a Patreon account under Living Through Extinction where you can earn stickers, pins, masks, and more. 
If you have any comments, corrections, questions, or suggestions, or even just to say hi, email livingthroughextinction at gmail.com or send me a message through one of the social media pages.